Hey, true crime besties, welcome back to an all new episode of Serialistly. Hey guys, welcome back to an all new episode of Serialistly. It's me, Annie your true crime bestie. We are here to talk true crime today. And the reason that this episode is being released out of the normal schedule is because it's way easier for me to edit audio rather than audio and video. So the video version of this will be available on YouTube, but I wanted to at least get this audio out to you guys because this case is extremely important. I want you guys to hear about it. I just didn't want any delays. And we have got a lot to talk about today. There have been some huge updates this week in the Suzanne Morphew case. So many of you guys have been DMing me, commenting, asking me to give you guys updates. What's going on? Her remains have been found. What's the story? Some people, because this was a case that first originated in 2020, some people haven't even heard of this case or how complex it really is and how shady it is and how many red flags there are. So I wanted to jump on here and do a deep dive for you. Now, As a reminder, if you've been following me from day one, you may have already been following this case. I started covering it when it first broke in 2020. That was also when I was like a tiny little baby channel. So of course, a lot of those videos are kind of in the archives. Nobody's really seen them, but we covered this case extensively. As a reminder, Suzanne was 49 years old when she disappeared from a bike ride that she was taking on Mother's Day in 2020. Almost immediately, her husband, Barry, was the main suspect in this for a multitude of reasons. During some of the preliminary hearings against Barry after he was arrested in connection with her disappearance, there were text messages released from both Suzanne and Barry. They were unsealed, and those messages suggested that they were both having affairs just before her disappearance. Also, four days before her disappearance, Suzanne sent Barry a text saying she was done, saying, I could care less what you've been up to and what you have been up to for years. She also added in that they needed to figure things out civilly. Then she vanished. So once Barry was arrested and charged, all of this new evidence started coming out. There was his hotel room that reeked of chlorine and indicated a possible cleanup. There was some shady paperwork left behind. There was cell phone pings that didn't match up. And I would say the majority of people following this case thought that Barry had something to do with it. Meanwhile, their two daughters were standing by Barry's side, saying he was innocent. Well, ultimately, the charges against him were dropped in April of 2022, but they were dropped for a very specific reason, and they were cited very specifically so that should they have more evidence and should they find remains, those charges could definitely be brought again against Barry. So he wasn't exonerated by any means because there wasn't even a trial. They actually dropped the charges just a few days before he was set to go to trial. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over all of the details from Suzanne's disappearance. I'm going to go over those preliminary hearings with the evidence against Barry, including the pings, the text messages, the hotel room, all of those things, because now when you have all of it in context, at least for me, it kind of starts to make sense. And then I'm going to jump back over on here and go over all of the updates that we know now. I wanted to do that because I really wanted to give you guys a full deep dive start to finish of where this case is at from beginning to now. On May 10th, 2020, just a couple of months ago, 49-year-old Suzanne Morphew was reported missing. 
It was Mother's Day, Sunday, May 10th. She had gone out for a solo bike ride and never returned home. At the time, her daughters Mallory and Macy were away camping with friends, her husband was out of town, and friends had been trying to get in touch with her that day. No luck, so they ended up calling one of Suzanne's neighbors, who ultimately ended up calling the police and reporting her as missing. Right out of the gate, this case immediately received a lot of media attention and there was a lot of speculation. As I mentioned, Suzanne's husband Barry was out of town that weekend when Suzanne went missing, and there were a lot of conflicting reports as to where Barry was. There were reports that he was away at a firefighter training camp. There were reports that he was away at a construction site in Denver. No real concrete alibi or sequence of events for his whereabouts that weekend were immediately revealed. It also was fascinating that he refused to do a polygraph. Now we've seen this in several cases and there's a lot of mixed opinions out there that if somebody refuses a polygraph they're guilty or they are innocent they just don't want to get caught up because maybe if they're nervous it could sway the test results one way or another. It, of course, immediately made people suspicious that he wouldn't take this, but other people on the other side of the argument were saying, no, he's just being smart. He doesn't want to get caught in something to where he looks guilty. If he's not, he would rather just work with the police and cooperate and show that his innocence is proven without this polygraph. So as I mentioned, right out of the gate, there was a lot of conflicting reports about Barry's whereabouts. There were the reports that he was away on that firefighter training camp, reports that he was at a site in Denver, and we really didn't get a solid timeline of events for that weekend until more details in the case started to emerge. And pretty early on, there was suspicion of an alleged mistress, and this mistress name is Morgan, and she is a landscaper and works with Barry. Now, she didn't have a comment for a very long time. Recently, Morgan spoke out and she gave her statement and she was very adamant that she is not the other woman, that there is absolutely zero romantic relationship between she and Barry. But what's interesting is she did share certain events that took place that weekend and interesting behaviors that Barry was showing her and experiencing and exuding to where it makes everything feel a little uncomfy, a little questionable, and that statement also ties in directly with another statement that was made by a colleague named Jeff, another colleague of Barry's, who was also involved in this story and work site that Barry had concocted or gone to work on that weekend. So let's jump right into those statements because I feel as though that is going to paint a very clear picture and the most accurate picture of what we know as of now could have possibly taken place that weekend. In Morgan's statement, when she was adamant saying, I'm not the other woman, I'm just a woman who works with Barry, it's not me, I'm not having an affair, she also said, I'm scared of Barry. I don't ever want to talk to Barry again, which is very interesting because they did have a working relationship. Now, she outlines what happened that weekend and from her point of view, of course, and what she felt like seemed a little off and a little unlike Barry's normal behavior because she had worked with him in the past. And she says that on Friday, May 8th, now remember, Suzanne went missing on Sunday, May 10th, Mother's Day. She says that on May 8th, she had worked on a beach construction site with Barry close to Maysville, which is reportedly also the same site that investigators searched early on in the case where they didn't find any evidence to Suzanne's disappearance. Well, on Saturday, while they were working at this site, 
Barry had asked Morgan to clean it up, rake it out so that it looked more like beach sand and not just muck, but she said that Barry was acting very strangely. She said he was acting very out of the ordinary. She asked him what's up. He seemed stressed. He definitely seemed weird on Saturday is what she said, which was one day before Suzanne disappeared. Also, what's very interesting is that Saturday, Morgan had agreed to work the entire day. However, Barry dismissed her at just 11 a.m. And he told her that he had to go and do some sort of activity with his wife, hiking, spend time with her. But then Morgan found out later that he had been in town all day, never actually going and doing those activities with his wife, although he had already dismissed Morgan from work early because that's what he was planning to do. The following day, Sunday, May 10th, the day Suzanne went missing, Morgan says she receives a phone call from Barry and asks her to come and assist on a project with him at a site that's over 150 miles away. Now this project was to build some sort of retaining wall and Morgan thought that it was just gonna be she and Barry working on this site. However, he also enlisted the help of another colleague of his named Jeff. Morgan also said, and I quote, that Barry sounded extremely panicked and very unlike himself in that phone call. So Morgan and this other contractor, Jeff, drive to this site 150 miles away, but late Sunday evening before they even arrive, they get a phone call from Barry. And Barry says that he has a family emergency, he has to leave, but that he left all of the tools for them to go work on the site and that he would be in touch with them soon. He said he was getting the site ready for them all day and had been working on it so that to grab the tools that he had left, to grab what the equipment they needed, and to go ahead and work on the site. Morgan and Jeff arrive to the Holiday Inn, which Barry had advised them to stay in, and this is in that town 150 miles away, almost three hours away from the home that Barry and Suzanne share in Maysville, Colorado. They arrive, Barry had checked out in a hurry because remember, he said he had that family emergency, so he, they didn't even see him when they arrived. But what's interesting is what they find when they get to that hotel. Because Barry was leaving, he told Jeff, just stay in my vacant hotel room since I have to leave anyway, it's fine. And when Jeff walks in, he describes it as smelling like chlorine, a very strong odor of chlorine, and says that there were sopping wet towels all over the floor. The bed also had the appearance of someone laying on top of it, but not being freshly made, but it didn't look as though somebody had slept there, he says. And in Jeff's statement, he says, and I quote, I got there Sunday night and the room smelled like chlorine real bad. It was his room and he'd taken a shower. His towels were all over the floor. And the smell was reportedly so strong that it made Morgan's eyes water when she walked into the room. Later on in the investigation, Barry says that he smelled the chlorine as well in the room and that it could have been because the hotel washed their towels or sheets with chlorine or because of the pool. But the hotel later confirmed that because of COVID, the pool had been closed for a very long time. So that wasn't possible. The hotel has also given footage to the investigators from all of their footage on the 9th, the day before Suzanne was reported missing. Now, in this interview, Jeff says that he was summoned to that hotel room and that job site by Barry. He says that he had found signs that the room had been used to some capacity, but it didn't appear as though Barry had stayed the night. The bed hadn't been slept in or laid in. It kind of just looked as though somebody took a shower, laid on the bed, and then left in a hurry. He also said that he discovered a pile of mail, and in that mail in the hotel room was also a letter about property insurance, which is really weird because 
And he turned that over to the FBI. But it's really weird because on what business trip do you ever, first of all, bring a stack of mail with you, but also bring a letter that is related to insurance, pro insurance property? It just doesn't make sense. And it seems a little fishy in my opinion. Jeff goes on to say that despite going there, driving this journey to go to this job site to work, he spent two days there without ever seeing the job site. That he didn't have the necessary tools as though Barry had promised they would. And Morgan had said that it looked as though he had emptied out his truck and that there were all kinds of stuff that they had there, but none of it that they actually needed. So they never even worked on this site. So tell me, how were they supposed to get this job done if they didn't have the necessary tools? Was this an oversight and maybe Barry was in such a panic that he packed up the tools that he was supposed to leave? Or were there never any tools there to begin with? On Monday morning, the day after Suzanne went missing, Morgan and Jeff are still in this town trying to work on this site or see when the tools are going to arrive because Barry then said he would be sending them the tools, which, spoiler alert, he never did and they never arrived. But Morgan receives a phone call from Barry that Monday morning, and he says to her that Suzanne has been attacked by a mountain lion, that she's missing, that it must have been a mountain lion who's got her. Very odd. In that call, Barry also says more material is on the way and those tools are on the way, which never arrived. So they ended up leaving the following day on Tuesday because they didn't have the tools, they couldn't work on the site. It seemed as though this was all kind of a ruse to create an alibi, in my opinion. And so they leave on Tuesday because they weren't even able to get their work done. In this interview that Morgan did, she claimed that two unidentified men approached her in Salida, Colorado, which is near Maysville, which is where you know everybody resides and the root of this story takes place, and that they were intimidating her. She says that they were discouraging her to talk to police and that they said they would pay her her paycheck, but that they didn't want people to misconstrue it as hush money. Now, I find that very interesting because if there isn't some ulterior motive happening or some degree of shadiness, why would, first of all, two unidentified men approach somebody, which is scary in itself, but also why would they say, oh, no, 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 we can't give you your paycheck because we don't want it to look like hush money. What are you talking about? They also tell her, you have rights and you don't have to give the CBI your phone. That is alarming because now not only are they discouraging her from talking to police, but they're also saying, hey, you don't have to give up your phone if you don't want to, hang on to that. Seems again, a little suspicious in my opinion. Morgan goes on to say, I did give the police my phone. I also did five interviews with them and then Barry fired her via text message. And she says that he fired her because she gave up her phone and because she was cooperating with CBI and that he was upset about it. And then she says to another news outlet, and I quote, I feel like if he was innocent, he would have talked to me. I worked with him every day for a long time. So they had this long working history together, yet he is firing her through text message. He's not talking to her. What's up? Why are you acting so shifty? It doesn't make any sense, especially if you already have built a relationship with this person, professionally, of course, you would just, what, ghost them? I don't understand. Especially because they're cooperating with the police in the investigation to your missing wife, who you claim to love so much. How is that at all normal behavior? After these interviews surfaced with Jeff and Morgan, Barry tried to discredit them at all costs. He said, you know, Jeff's been in prison for nine years. He's a shady guy. Morgan's a meth head. You can't believe anything she says. Trying to just like, 
basically bash these people and say that they're horrible people, they can't be trusted. So, and then when asked, okay, well then why did you hire Jeff for this job in Bloomsfield this weekend? His response was that, you know, I needed a guy, I wanted to give him a chance, so I called him, I said I'd pay you good money, I have an opportunity for you. And for me, I took that as he's trying to deflect and not only say these two people have a bad rap and they can't be trusted and the only reason I even hired him was because I was trying to give him an opportunity and help him out to make it look as though he's the good guy who was just trying to give a handout and do a favor to this guy who had such a tough life and unfortunate circumstances. I personally am not buying it and I feel like it's one more misstep in his effort to get the public's opinion to side with him and think that he is this grandstanding man. And Jeff says this wasn't a last minute job. This had been a job that was actually in the works for months. So again, that statement doesn't quite add up, Barry, does it? While speaking out on this, Barry also says, Morgan's only speaking negatively about me because I fired her and she's mad. So they're both upset and they're not gonna say anything good about me. Again, making it about him and saying that they're just upset over being fired. Again, just deflecting entirely. And if these people are so bad, if they have such a bad history, if they can't be trusted, if you don't agree with their behavior, why'd you hire them, Barry? Why'd you hire them to begin with? And why did you have a long working history with people who you are saying are so tough to work with and so untrustworthy? Now, the precise timeline of Barry's whereabouts that weekend are still unclear. However, it does look as though he went to that job site ahead of the contractors and then rushed home in a hurry when he had a family emergency, like he had stated, but then we see all of the pieces of evidence that were left behind and the inconsistencies in his story along the way that don't match up to what his colleagues said they heard and what they saw. So. It just, in my opinion, it seems like there's something up. What he actually did on that trip is still unclear. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when he made that phone call to Morgan that Monday after Suzanne went missing, he had said that she was attacked by a mountain lion. And this is a theory that he has been trying to push and float around out there now for some time. He also is coming down on the investigator saying that they botched the investigation, that they're not doing their jobs. And he keeps pushing this narrative that she was attacked by a mountain lion on that solo bike ride that day. And his exact theory is that she was riding her bike she was attacked by that mountain lion, and then she drove off of the edge of a mountain or the edge of a hill. I mean, that's a pretty elaborate story to tell, especially if you have no real knowledge of what took place during that bike ride. I just can't help but wonder, I mean, if roles were reversed, and if I had just found out and been notified that my spouse was missing, I don't know that I would jump to the conclusions that they were attacked by a mountain lion, that they drove over the edge of a mountain. My first inclination would be, oh my god, maybe they fell on their bike and they skinned their knee or they broke their leg and they can't you know, leave and come for help. Maybe the bike is damaged and they can't ride. Maybe their phone when they fell flew and that's why they haven't called anybody. I don't know that I would jump to they must have been attacked by a mountain lion and then drove over the cliff of the edge of the mountain and that's what happened. It's just so far-fetched to me. And again, if that's just my opinion, it just seems like such an elaborate story to be told when you really have no idea what took place on that mountain, allegedly. 
And Suzanne's brother Andy does not believe this mountain lion story for a second. He says there was absolutely no blood evidence, no tracks on the ground, no scent from an animal, and he says, my gut feeling is that there was foul play involved in her disappearance. And he says that when he went to that location in which she was riding her bike, he stood there, he realized that nobody had rode their bike over the edge. He says there would have been signs of a struggle and somebody being skinned up, and he is just not sold on this theory that Barry is pushing out there so hard. Also, when investigators searched that area, they say that they found the bike, but no evidence that Suzanne had been there. And in fact, they say that the bicycle was not ridden over a hill, but that it had been placed there by human hands. Now, that got me thinking, because I can't help but wonder hearing that, did they retrieve some sort of evidence that there were possibly palm prints on the bar of the bicycle? You know, the bar that goes across where the two wheels are connected, whatever that's called, or fingerprints to where it shows that somebody had picked it up and placed it. They didn't release the details out of how, as to how they came to this conclusion, that it was actually placed there by human hands, but I would imagine we'll hear more of that in the coming future, but I thought that that was very interesting that they already released that information and said with conviction that it, there was no indication that the bike was even ridden. It looks as though where they discovered it, it was placed by human hands. Another piece of information that came out through all of this that is a little suspect as well is that the FBI asked Suzanne's brother Andy why there were no coolers in the family home. And Andy said, you know, I don't know because Barry's a hunter. They always would go camping. I'm sure they certainly own coolers. That seems very odd. So then I started thinking, okay, why wouldn't there be coolers in the house? Would he have maybe packed them up and taken them with him on that journey to the construction site 150 miles away and he needed to either bring food, water, supplies, and then maybe since he was in such a hurry, he didn't bring them back with him? Or did he go on a long journey into the mountains for a couple days and he needed supplies and water and food? I don't know, but it does seem highly suspicious, again, in my opinion. One of the most damning pieces of evidence and information that has been released since all of this first began and everything's been starting to unravel and uncover is that Andy was told that the Morphew family home reeked of chlorine as well, that same smell that Jeff and Morgan smelled in that hotel room that Barry had checked out of. Now, when you think about that, I understand coincidences happen. I understand that sometimes you can't, you can't explain the unexplainable. I get it. I find it highly suspicious that two places, two separate places in which Barry was within that small finite window of time, both smell like chlorine and a, and a strong stench of a cleaning odor. Now, why would that be unless something was being cleaned, unless something was being covered up, unless something was being hidden. Now you have all of these different pieces of evidence coming into play, and I should say pieces of speculation. You have this grandiose concocted mountain lion story. You have 
two different points within of location, the hotel and the home that smell like chlorine. You have Barry refusing to take a polygraph. You have Barry now trying to discredit and defame his employees who were just cooperating with the investigation and now he's trying to attack them and discredit them. You have people trying to quiet down Morgan and say, hey, you don't have to talk to the police and you don't have to turn over your phone. Again, all of these seem a little too coincidental in my opinion to indicate in any way that Barry is innocent in all of this. Now it took about a year for the investigation to continue until Barry was ultimately charged on May 5th, 2021. He was charged with murder one, he was charged with tampering with physical evidence, and he was charged with attempting to influence a public servant. And here is what the press conference had to say. My name is Linda Stanley. I'm the district attorney for the 11th Judicial District, which includes Fremont County, Custer, and Chaffee County counties total. Um, I wanted to say that thanks for being here for everybody. And there's a couple of things I'd like to address um, about this case. First, the investigation is still ongoing. Uh, Suzanne, her body has not been found, and we are still looking into that. The investigation is ongoing. Second, Barry Morphew is presumed innocent until proven guilty. That's important to remember. Third, the arrest affidavit is sealed at this time. I cannot and will not discuss it. Fourth, all media inquiries from this date forward should go through my office. However, I'm sure you all are aware and know that we cannot talk about any open or active investigation. And that is per the rules of professional conduct that we will abide by. Lastly, I wanted to say that today is a good day. It's a good day for all of the men and women in law enforcement that have tirelessly worked toward getting here. They worked day in and day out, sacrificing more than any of you will ever know. They even continued working and continued their sacrifices as they were being raked over the coals and second guessed as to their skills and abilities. I'm standing here in front of you on this good day because they never quit. Sheriff Speezy and his deputies at the Chaffee County Sheriff's Office, Alex Walker, investigator for the 11th Judicial District, those two individuals and Sheriff Speezy's office in particular are consummate professionals and quite frankly, some of the best I've ever worked with in my entire professional career. They followed every lead, every tip, and every unanswered question, no matter what direction it led them in. They never compromised the integrity of the investigation. On several occasions over the last few months after I was sworn in on January 12th of this year, I met with these professionals and went through hours and hours of their meticulous investigation. Their investigation was presented to our office just a few weeks ago. For me, today is a good day, but for my office, this is where the work begins. There's more work to be done. However, this is an important and incredibly crucial step. And today is a good day for Suzanne. As far as I'm concerned, today is all about Suzanne. And it's about her family and it's about all the individuals that knew her and loved her and cared about her. That's what this day is about, and it's a good day.
Thank you. So first and foremost, what I want to say is I think it's actually pretty poetic that this is happening a almost exactly one year after Suzanne went missing and also anniversaries with Mother's Day. He is charged with first degree murder and it shows the offense date as the 10th, which is the day we know Suzanne went missing of 2020. Now, if we talk through the charges, of course, the main one is first degree. First degree means you needed to have the intent to murder this person. So I believe in all of the evidence they have collected and whatever the cause of death may be once that does get released, I do think that that is why they're so confident with this charge. We all know the infamous chlorine smell in the hotel room. So did the crime occur in that hotel room? Is that where he tampered with the evidence and disposed the body? And tampering with evidence or destroying evidence charges if we just think quickly to the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case where they dismembered and burned the remains of the children, that is where they got the tampering with evidence charges. So it's possible that Suzanne could have been killed in the home and then he could have taken her f further away to dispose and destroy evidence and do whatever he was going to do and then use the chlorine to cover up that scent and his tracks and any forensic trace evidence. And then charges with a public servant attempt to influence them. Now, there has been conversation that was he trying to influence a police officer, a firefighter, any public official? We don't know the details about that. I would imagine that's something we also will find in the affidavit when it's unsealed and in the discovery. But if we think back too to his alibi and the hotel, the chlorine, the missing tools for the project that he had his crew coming up for, his scatterbrain behavior and very suspicious behavior, it really hasn't looked good for Barry, good old Barry, since day one. We already know that Barry is in custody, that he has had several charges against him, more which apparently keep adding up weekly. And new charges were also added to good old Barry's docket. So we start with count one, murder in the first degree. Count two, this is a new one, tampering with a deceased human body. Now, before we saw that conversation about tampering with evidence, and now there is the clarification of tampering with a deceased human body. And we'll get to more on that in just a minute here. Tampering with physical evidence, possession of a dangerous weapon. This is a new charge too that we haven't seen. What weapon we don't know? And then attempt to influence a public servant, which we already knew was on there from the original charges. And we still haven't gotten any sort of clarification as to what the particular details are with that charge. But I do want to go in here and break down some of these charges for you just so that you have a better understanding of what this all means. So we start with murder in the first degree. And it says between and including May 9th, 2020 and May 10th, 2020, which is we know when Suzanne went missing, Barry Lee Morphew unlawfully, feloniously after deliberation and with the intent to cause death of a person other than himself caused the death of Suzanne Morphew. Now, I find this very interesting because it is saying here to outline that they already know he did cause the death of his wife, Suzanne Morphew, which I don't think that there was a ton of question in our mind since the, since the original arrest and the charges, especially given that press conference in which Linda Stanley spoke out and had such strong conviction as to the evidence they have against Barry in this regard. Then we go into count two, tampering with a deceased body. Between and including May 9th and again May 10th, 2020, Barry Lee Morphew, believing that an official proceeding was pending in progress 
or about to be instituted and acting without legal right or authority, unlawfully and feloniously, willingly destroyed, mutilated, concealed, removed, or altered a human body, part of a human body or human remains with intent to impair its or their appearance or availability in the official proceedings. And it shows the section in which it's violated. Now, this is very interesting, and this brings me right back to the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case, because we know that they had tampering with evidence, and they did decapitate and dismember the bodies of those two children. And so here, what's very interesting to note is that he mutilated, he could have mutilated, destroyed, concealed, uh, any type of thing with Suzanne's body. Now, this leads me to believe that possibly he did use that bobcat, which we've not talked so much about. Going into count three, tampering with physical evidence between and including May 9th and March 4th, 2021, at Barry Lee Morphew, believing that an official proceeding was pending or about to be instituted and acting without legal right or authority, unlawfully and feloniously destroyed, mutilated, concealed, removed, or altered physical evidence with intent to impair its verity or availability in the pending or prospective official proceeding. A new one for us, count Four, possession of a dangerous weapon between and including May 9th, 2020 and March 4th, 2021. Barry Lee Morphew unlawfully, feloniously, and knowingly possessed a dangerous weapon, namely a short rifle in violation of section, and tells you the section number. And then we round it out with count five, attempt to influence a public servant, and we all know this isn't a new one. Between and including May 10th, 2020 and May 5th, 2021, Barry Lee Morphew unlawfully and feloniously attempted to influence Damon Brown, Lamine Mulinex, Robin Burgess, Alexander Walker, Joseph Calhill, Derek Graham, Kenneth Harris, and Jonathan Gresling, public servants by means of deceit with the intent thereby to alter or affect the public servant's decision, vote, opinion, or action concerning a matter which was to be considered or performed by the public servant or the agency or body of which the public servant was a member. So after all of these charges have now been filed against Barry, we get into the preliminary hearings. And during these hearings, we hear more of the discovery and the evidence against Barry. We hear about an affair that Suzanne's having. We hear about the text messages, some phone pings, and all of the details within that. And now we're moving into the preliminary hearing. We've also seen the affidavits and certain details and testimony released. So we start with, of course, we know that one of the biggest pieces of evidence within this investigation and the theory that was being pushed by Barry was that she went biking that morning, that there was the accident, there was the bobcat theory, all of these different things. So it comes out, and this is all through testimony and citing back to the affidavits, that a picture of Suzanne wearing a light blue helmet and matching jacket with her camelback and sunglasses was shown. She was on the Methodist Mountain. Now, what's really interesting is the bike helmet was found eight and a half miles from the bike five days later after she was reported missing. But what is even more interesting that I found is that in that picture, she's wearing the blue helmet, matching jacket, and a camelback. Yet, if we fast forward a little bit, and I'm just going to kind of go through what's been reported, her camelback was found in her car, and the sunglasses were found in Indiana inside the Range Rover. So I'm curious as to, first of all, I want to know more about that image when she had that on, and then how the camelback, if she did go missing on that bike ride, like was it was alleged in the beginning, why, how did the camelback mysteriously work its way back into the car? That's my first question. 
Also, interestingly enough, when the helmet was recovered, it wasn't damaged. It was found south on the highway. And we know that inside the helmet was a piece of paper with her name and her contact information. And that's not really out of the normal. A lot of people who I personally know who ride bikes and do that for exercise always have either their medical information or contact information inside their helmet in case they do get injured. So that didn't strike me as weird. But what does strike me as weird is the fact that the helmet was intact and didn't appear to be damaged and that the camelback was inside the car. When we start looking at more of the activity of Barry's footprints, his whereabouts, the um, DVR and trunk data, we start to get a little bit clearer of a picture here too. And it was reported that activity from Barry's truck door shows that it opened around 3.26 a.m. that morning in which she was reported missing on May 10th, and then it opened again at 8.10 a.m. He had told investigators originally that he left the house that morning around 5 a.m. So here's what I take from it with those timestamps. And again, this is just my opinion, but he opens his truck door at 3.30 a.m. He then opens it again at 8 a.m. I think that he probably was driving somewhere two and a half, three hours away to conceal, destroy, disclose evidence, whatever he was trying to do. Then he opens it again at 8 a.m. to pull stuff out, to bring stuff in. Because if you look at that 5 a.m. marker too, when he said he left the house, if you bookend the two, it's really a two and a half hour swing on both sides of that. So continuing on with more of that footprint and the surveillance, there's no surveillance of the Morphew home from the 9th or the 10th, which is very, very interesting. The DVR was missing. There's also been lots of talk about whose DNA was on those DVR cords. DNA tests showed that moderate support that D Suzanne's DNA was on the cords, but Barry and both of their daughters' DNA was excluded. Next, we go into what I found pretty interesting because if you've been watching any of my videos, you know that I've been calling Barry, Barry the Bobcat from day one. I felt like him pushing this Bobcat story as to the reason why Suzanne must have been harmed and disappeared was just kind of in line with him actually having a bob Bobcat, that machinery. Like that's just been my theory from day one and as a means to destroy evidence. However, what's interesting is that according to page 41 in the ar arrest affidavit, Barry Morphew's bobcat doesn't appear to be connected to her disappearance. Possibly the cover-up, I don't know, to be determined. But it does say that it doesn't appear to be connected to her disappearance. And now if we speak about Suzanne's Range Rover, another piece of interesting evidence, and this kind of starts to tie in with not the spy pen, but some other information that we're going to get to. There was DNA found on the glove box. And when that DNA was sent for testing, it came back that it was not Barry Morpheus, but it was from an unknown man. But they didn't elaborate on who that individual was or why it was brought up in court. Now, this throws reasonable doubt directly into the situation, in my opinion, at least, because it illustrates that there was an unknown man's DNA on the glove box, could this have been an outsider coming into the situation and left DNA behind? It's just very, very odd. Also, no human blood was found in the Morphe residence other than some found on some feminine products that were proved to have belonged to Suzanne. Here, this is probably the best situation, like the best little snippet of information that I've seen so far come out of this prelim hearing that is really good for Barry's defense because it's saying that not only does his bobcat not appear to be connected to the disappearance, but 
the DNA that was found inside Suzanne's Range Rover belonged to a man that ruled Barry out. And it was a man who has a record. Now, that works for his defense. And that has, again, reasonable doubt all over it, in my opinion. Now, as we kind of get to a little bit more of where we start to learn more about Suzanne's life, um, FBI agent Harris revealed that there were many text messages exchanged between Suzanne and her best friend, Sheila Oliver. And they have been friends now for over 30 years. They met at Purdue, I believe. And it was asked, okay, what was the state of Barry and Suzanne's marriage? What was it like? Because their text message exchange revealed quite a bit of trouble in the marriage. Suzanne had said, he, meaning Barry, is unstable, and other text messages implied that Barry would turn his, the daughters against her. So clearly there was a little bit of turmoil within that marriage, definitely some concerning text messages, and she was confiding in her best friend of 30 years. So Sheila was contacted by Mallory, Suzanne's daughter, a few days after Suzanne went missing. And when the investigator heard from Barry that the night before she went missing, they had that perfect night, they got the sandwiches, they were downtown, Sheila had told investigators that Suzanne and Barry hadn't had a perfect night in over a year and a half. Now, I found that very telling because in the beginning, when all of this first surfaced, Barry was very much, you know, Suzanne's my angel. She's amazing. This and that. We had this great night. We had a date night the night before. And everybody was kind of like oh, piecing other pieces of the information together. Like, well, then why would you do this? Why would you say this? So the fact that here, her best friend of 30 years also states, no, she confided in me in her concerns with the marriage and how Barry was acting. And they haven't had a perfect night in over a year and a half. Like, what are you talking about that coincidentally the night before she disappears, they have the most perfect night together? I don't think so. So I found that interesting. Um, he goes on to read the prosecution's theory from page 129 in the arrest warrant affidavit. And that shows that investigators used Barry's telematics report on his truck from 2.47 p.m. the day before the 9th, which is the day they had that amazing date night, until 5.37 a.m. He took steps in that disposing of evidence of Suzanne's disappearance and death. Now, I don't know exactly why it came to this conclusion, but it was reported that this means that the last known time that Suzanne was actually alive was on at 2.47 on Saturday, May 29th. Now, one of the biggest bombshells that came out of the hearing was the spy pen. And we um, heard all about the spy pen a few weeks ago, but we didn't know who it belonged to necessarily. We didn't know what was on it. Now we do know that it was voice activated. And upon cross-examination, it was revealed that Suzanne bought that spy pen to catch Barry in a suspected affair. However, they didn't find any evidence that Barry was in an affair, which kind of ties back to his that little like snippet I was telling you about that of all those pieces that work for his defense and reasonable doubt, but then we start to negate it in just a minute here and I'll tell you why. So they didn't find any evidence of him having an affair, but instead they found out that Suzanne was in a two-year affair. Um, now she and her lover had only met for six times, but they had over the course of the two years, but they did have over a hundred hours of secret phone calls. I do find it interesting because I think that this not only helps Barry's defense in the fact that there was no evidence that supported him having an affair, but I think it also illustrates possible motive as to why he could be involved in her disappearance and 
suggested death. And in November is actually when law enforcement found out about the affair. They didn't know for six months leading up to this that there was even any affair because nobody came forward. He didn't come forward. And if Suzanne's friends knew what was going on, they didn't come forward. So they had met up the six times, twice in Indiana. And she it said that Suzanne did not tell a single soul about this affair. And Jeff didn't even come forward to law enforcement. They ended up finding out in November, tracked him down, and then spoke to him in 2020. And then in on that spy pen too, it did capture another recording that was interesting. And it says that it starts while it was in the trunk, which I found odd. And it says Suzanne was arguing with Barry about money. Suzanne was also very angry about what she can and cannot wear. Now this was according to, I believe, FBI agent Harris. Now this statement stuck with me because now it starts to kind of, for me at least, paint a picture for motive. She is arguing with Barry about money, arguing and angry about what she apparently is and is not allowed to wear, coupled with a possible affair that he learned about could absolutely be the recipe for disaster for motive. Because it seems to me, again, just my opinion, that he must have had some level of frustration or control issues or things of that nature if he was controlling what she could and could not wear. So then too, on top, if you're not even allowing her to wear something, then you learn she's having an affair. You're probably blowing a gasket is what my guess would be. And who knows if that erupted into something, of course, much larger. Special agent, special FBI agent Ken Harris took the stand and he says that Suzanne was starting to become more and more independent, increasingly so. She all, he also says that she had stated she was waiting until her youngest daughter was out of the house. She thought that Barry was holding money and their daughters over her head to keep control. And as we go through this, you'll see it really begins to illustrate a picture that not only were in an unhappy marriage or she was in an unhappy marriage but she was I don't want to know I don't know if I want to use the word scared of him but she definitely there was an element of fear in the sense that he was holding several things over her head such as the relationship she had with her daughters money a lot of religious things as well several several things which just if you've ever been in any sort of relationship like that or friendship like that or have a family member like that, you know that it can make you feel cornered and like there's no way out. As we start going into the text messages that her best friend Sheila received from her, and this is the best friend again of over 30 years, I'm going to read a few of them to just kind of, again, clearly paint this picture for you. There was a text message from Suzanne first that said, I'd live in a shack right now. I'm sure he won't make it easy. He's always wanted control. And when Sheila asked Suzanne how she would support herself, she texted her back and said, I don't know. I just wish he would get fed up with me and let me get out of this marriage. Again, going back to an element of control and really just wanting to have, you know, complete control over the situation. According to Special Agent Harris, when Suzanne told Sheila that she wanted to leave Barry, he would respond to her by saying things such as, how would you pay for things like your medical bills for cancer? Again, going back and holding money over her head. Suzanne had communicated with Sheila that she was completely done with their marriage. And that was just around this time when all of this had happened and even some of the months leading up to it. So Agent Harris also mentioned that Sheila told him back in 2018, Barry had allegedly pushed Suzanne into a closet and put a gun to her head, or I'm sorry, to his head and asked her if that's what she wanted. So not only a level of controlling behavior, so holding money over her head, controlling what she wears, holding the girls over her head. But now 
flipping it around and I don't know if gaslighting is the correct term possibly, but basically then pinning her in a closet, putting the gun to his own head, being like, is this what you want? In another text message from Suzanne, she said, tells Sheila, it's Jekyll and Hyde again. He and Mal were together last night, probably switching it on when he talks to her. Ugh, I feel like I'm crazy. I just had a conversation with him, pretty much told him I can't be healthy and stay in this. This message for me really began to lie the, lay the foundation of she made it known to him that she was starting to pull away because she's, and then there's some big movements, which we'll talk about here in a minute where it clearly does state that, but where she says, I can't be healthy and stay in this as though she's laying the groundwork to leave him. And I would imagine that he's starting to sense that she's beginning to pull away. She also tells Sheila that he threw the 70 by seven at me. Now, I'm not extremely religious, um, but apparently this is a scripture reference and how many times they should forgive somebody else. So again, holding religion over her head, finances over her head, all of these things. And she said he was always using scripture when it's convenient. Just awful. And she continues in her messages saying he won't speak of divorce, begging for another chance. I'm so torn, but in my heart, I know who he is. And I told him I'm done. I need peace. He senses she's pulling away. She's then very vocal that she's pulling away. He's trying to hold on to her with any means necessary, holding religion over her head, finances over her head, the children over her head, then guilting her by throwing her in a closet and holding the, the, his weapon to his own head, say, saying, you know, is this what you want? Is this what you want? And now we're going to quickly pause on here. And start talking about her relationship with Jeff. Anne first had reached out to Jeff on Facebook. She then suggested using Voxer to communicate. Then they switched to talking on the phone. They also at one point used LinkedIn to message back and forth and WhatsApp. They used several different methods to communicate in addition to talking on the phone. Now, Barry had told investigators that he didn't know about an affair that she was having which doesn't seem entirely true. And we're going to get to why in just a minute. Suzanne had told Sheila that he would be concerned with, she would be concerned with Barry's reaction if Sheila spent the, sent the spy pen to her house because that's when Suzanne really, she wanted to get that spy pen. She wanted to get recordings because she was trying to catch Barry in an affair, allegedly. And so she says that she didn't want to be worried and have to deal with Barry's reaction if he saw that the spy pen came to her house. So she said, wait until the trip that where I go to Florida, give it to me then. But Suzanne never told Sheila that she used it, apparently. And that's according to Sheila. And the spy pen wasn't found until June 2nd, several weeks after she was reported missing. And it was found in Suzanne's closet. On, on that pen... They learned about Jeff from a conversation that was recorded from back in February 2020, a few months before her disappearance. And But at that time, they didn't know who Jeff was. And when they found it, there were 11 deleted files and 11 saved files. Now, the FBI agent Ken Harris believes that the files were deleted by Suzanne, and he was able to recover two of the files that had been deleted. And then two other files he said he couldn't remember, and he couldn't recall what was on those. So as we know, their relationship, whatever it was, went on for approximately two years. And on November 26, 2018, so well before she disappeared, there were seven calls between Suzanne and Jeff that totaled to four hours in total. The next day, she texts Sheila saying that she had a tough talk with Barry, but she still hadn't mentioned to Sheila this new relationship with Jeff, which 
I don't think is that out of the normal. I think because we know that she didn't tell anybody about this relationship with Jeff, but she did say that she had a tough talk with Barry. So I wonder again, if this was around the time and when she started laying the groundwork for her unhappiness and potentially leaving him. According to Barry's attorney, Iris Eiten, and I hope I'm saying that right, Jeff and Suzanne spoke 26 times between January 4th and January 11th of 2019. And when they were looking at phone records to confirm, he said that it was 19, but he just, he needed to reread it and that he didn't have the exact data, but it was approximately 26 times within that week, um, the first week of January 2019, one year ahead of when Suzanne went missing. So clearly this relationship was beginning whatever the context was of this relationship, whether it was a friendship, a physical affair, whatever it was, it was beginning to get pretty serious to where they were talking frequently enough and for long enough periods of time to where there was a level of intimacy. So as they were talking throughout 2019, one of Jeff's daughters found out about him speaking with Suzanne and told her older brothers and uncles. Now remember, he's married and has six children. She had used her dad's phone to order pizza and the messages, and then she discovered the messages from Suzanne. So Suzanne and Jeff paused their relationship for a while, but then they began communicating again Christmas 2019. Now the, the dates and the timestamps aren't 100% clear here. It was sometime between mid to end January of 2019 and December of 2019, almost a full year in which the daughter discovered, one of his daughters discovered that there was this affair or this exchange of communication happening. So, so much so that they paused communicating and then reignited everything in December of 2019. And this is when things really begin to ramp up between the two of them. And this is five months before Suzanne is reported missing. So Jeff had told Suzanne allegedly that Ecuador is a cheap place to live with good health care. So on December 27th of 2019, Suzanne's iCloud account discovered that she was researching language schools in Ecuador, possibly trying to start over, to have a new life, a possibly a new life with Jeff, and to get out of Barry's clutches. Suzanne had planned a trip to New Orleans in February and asked Jeff if he would like to meet her there. And she said to him, maybe we are in the clear for Valentine's Day. Barry won't be around then. And this was heard on one of the recordings. And he says to her, you are the sweetest thing. I've, oh, I'm sorry. She says to him, you are the sweetest thing I've ever known. Was just enthralled with this man, apparently. And we'll talk more about that because they actually do talk about marriage together. And um, we're going to get there in just a minute. She tells him she cannot live her life without him in it. And Jeff allegedly left a message to Suzanne also saying, baby, you are a sweetheart. This boy craves you, everything about you. Special Agent Harris said that Suzanne and Jeff were calling each other soulmates and were talking like lovers. And Barry's attorney asked if they had sent nude photos to one another. And FBI Agent Harris said, yes, they did. Um, also, according to FBI agent Harris, it was Jeff that got Suzanne into mountain biking as well as drinking IPA. And he just again reiterated that they talk like lovers do. Clearly a relationship, exchanging nudes, so it's not just platonic, saying, you know, how you know, obsessed they are with each other and how they want each other in their lives. And this was in those months right before her disappearance. And what I find pretty interesting too is that the FBI agent testifies that Jeff is the one who got Suzanne into mountain biking. Jeff and Suzanne would also message each other on LinkedIn, like I mentioned. And uh, Jeff said on May 6th, 
just a couple of days before Suzanne's disappearance, I know these next few days were going to be rough. They also sent pictures to each other. So that message is pretty loaded to me at least. And tell me what you think, because that is four days before Suzanne goes missing. And he says, I know these next few days were going to be rough. Was Suzanne planning on leaving Barry? Was she planning on telling him? Because he's saying as a precursor, hey, I know the next couple of days are going to suck and it's going to be hard. And they were sending pictures. So I'm curious as to, is that a prelude to what was about to come? Two days before Suzanne was reported missing, she and Jeff also were texting romantically again. And on the morning of May 9th, the day before she disappeared, or I'm sorry, could be the day she did disappear. It was the day before she was reported missing. She texts, we need to be husband and wife. And he had also said earlier in those messages, you look great in biking gear. You need to be my wife. And then on Friday, May 9th, she says, we need to be husband and wife. He responds and he's like, sorry, my gang is home. And the texts stop. And that was the last communication. And that was at 2.11 on May 9th. And that was via LinkedIn. Now, I just want to throw out that it's a pretty hefty coincidence, in my opinion, that she's texting her lover on the side who she's now had a two-year-long exchange with and rapport with that we need to be married. And he's exchanging similar sentiments. And within hours, she goes missing. As I mentioned, that last exchange was via LinkedIn. And according to Ken Harris, the FBI agent, Suzanne wanted to be married to Jeff. Jeff got rid of his LinkedIn account. He learned of Suzanne's disappearance on May 12th when somebody sent him a link. Barry's attorney says Suzanne's secret spy pen led investigators to Suzanne's secret affair. And it was reported that this remark was sent kind of in a snide way, as though it somehow damages her. Like, oh, her secret spy pen that she was going to use against Barry actually led us to her secret life and her secret affair. But in reality, it may be the very thing that proves motive in all of this. So it's great that they found it because at least now we're getting the whole picture because Barry never came forward saying that Suzanne was having an affair and it suggested that he knew about it. So had it not been for this spy pen, which Barry did not know about, would we even know that there was an affair that had taken place? Would we even know that there was a possible motive? Maybe not. So special agents flew to Michigan to interview Jeff when all of this was going down back and when they found out who he was in November of 2020. He hadn't come forward before the investigators found the spy pen, as I had mentioned. He claimed his phone had been destroyed shortly after Suzanne went missing. He deleted all of the secret accounts after she went missing on WhatsApp. Now, the deleting the secret accounts, I can get on board with. I get that. I wish that he had come forward and he spoke up about everything, but... If, he, the, if the whole point was to protect his marriage and his children and all of that, I understand why he would delete WhatsApp, the messages, all that to kind of wipe it clean. However, saying that his phone had been destroyed shortly after she went missing doesn't sit right with me, guys. I don't know. Like, tell me what you guys think. I really want to know what you guys think. So throw it in the comments. I want to know what you make of all that. The fact that he didn't come forward to law enforcement. Now his phone is magically destroyed. Suzanne also had deleted messages on WhatsApp as well during their relationship, which also, again, is no surprise. If you're cheating and you're secret messaging, you're probably, if you're smart at least, deleting as you go. In a recording of Jeff with the investigators, he says, I don't have the phone anymore. It was a company phone and has been replaced. And they couldn't really hear the rest of the recording. It was said that there were some technical difficulties. 
They did say, though, that on May 10th, Jeff's phone was pinging off Michigan Towers. FBI agent Harris was looking through the reports of the conversation with Jeff that investigators had, and Jeff had mentioned that Suzanne told him that Barry had seen some of the messages and that they needed to switch communication apps. I find this interesting because this right here is the statement that would open the door to motive, Barry knowing about those messages. And it does make sense that he possibly did discover them and with Suzanne saying she had to switch communication methods because we know they had communicated through Voxer, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of these different things. So if he discovered one, time to move along to the next. Why fix it if it's broken? If it's broken, you got to fix it and you got to get a new one. And we know she did get a new one several times. He continues to say she was worried. What if Barry looks up records? He had he had no idea that we had talked to each other. So had he looked up records, he would automatically know that something was fishy. But then in another piece of the testimony, Jeff says that he didn't believe Barry knew about him. And he says, if he knew about me, he would have came after me. I just don't think that he knew Suzanne and I were together. So he's saying he didn't think Barry knew, but he's also then kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth because he's saying, but Suzanne told me he didn't know and that he did stumble across messages. Or maybe it's that he didn't know the extent of what was going on, but this right here, in my opinion at least, starts to open the door to motive. Investigators never found Suzanne's phone or the charger that she leaves plugged in next to her bed. So investigators had what was backed up on the iCloud as well as phone records from the phone company. And Barry's attorney, Iris, asked if Suzanne had a SIM card and FBI agent Harris says no. So where was her phone? And here's where my mind starts going. Could Barry have gotten rid of her phone to destroy evidence of the affair so that there wouldn't be a motive? Because think about it. If he saw these messages like she is saying that he did and he knew that she was having an affair, even if hypothetically the affair had already ended, he would have told the police about the affair when Suzanne went missing so they could investigate Jeff as a possible suspect. But he wanted to keep that affair hidden for some reason. Why? I don't believe it was to protect his daughters, but I think it was to selfishly protect himself. Because if that affair was made public, motive would automatically be attached to this. And he, in my, it's my belief at least, that he didn't want there to be a motive as to why he could be involved. So he had to wipe clean any trace of any affair ever happening. At this point in the hearing, they bring to the stand former FBI agent Johnny Grusing, and he has worked several no-body homicide cases. And they had asked him to interview Barry because he has behavioral analyst expertise. He um, has worked on so many of these no-body homicide cases, so he takes the stand. And he says that he investigated Barry's cell phone, he analyzed it, and he was asked asked to find out where Barry was on May 9th and May 10th, where his whereabouts were. And we start to get a big timeline built for us just based on his truck data. And we're going to go into that in just a minute. But that's what he was initially asked for. He was then asked about the truck truck movement based on the data. And there were 625 pages in that report that needed to be analyzed. And this included things such as doors opening, closing, the trunk opening, brake lights being pushed, I mean, I had no idea. I knew about GPS and all that, but I had no idea that you could get all of this data from the software in cars. It's crazy. 
So on May 9th, the telematics of his truck and phone were correlating with what Barry had said, that he went to the Tailwinds property around 11, then went home around 1130, and he had veggie soup with Suzanne. Now remember, this is the day before Suzanne was reported missing. It's my belief that this is the day that something happened to Suzanne. So he's at the Tailwinds property around 11, gets home around 1130, they're eating veggie soup. He allegedly then left again around 1.30. He made a few phone calls, and then he checks out a job site at a local gym in Salida and returned home at 2.45 p.m. Now, here's where things get interesting. When Barry Morphew got home, Suzanne was sunbathing and sending photos, selfies of herself to Jeff. And they pulled up one of these selfies in the hearing, and it was her laying on her stomach, just, you know, how everybody takes selfies. And it reportedly also made the girls very emotional when they saw it, which I can imagine. So at 2.11, she, Suzanne tells Jeff to get on WhatsApp and she messaged him that through LinkedIn. Now, remember, they were talking on so many different platforms. They were talking through Facebook, on the phone, LinkedIn, Voxer, um, WhatsApp. So at 2.11 in the afternoon, right before Barry returns home, she messages him on LinkedIn, and she says, hey, switch over. We got to talk on WhatsApp. Barry's phone data tell, says that he was moving around the home during all of this as she was sunbathing, and he asks him what he was doing outside. And he responds, and this gets me, he responds, I shoot chipmunks. I have shot 85 chipmunks. Now, the reason that stands out to me, if you are at all familiar with the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case, one of the biggest pieces of evidence that they brought into the case was when Chad Daybell says he he texts his wife and he says, I just shot a raccoon out back. So when I first heard this, that's immediately where my mind went is, okay, is the chipmunk really a, like, you know, a cover for Suzanne, just like the raccoon was a cover for Tylee and the kids. Like, I, I just started to think that that was a very weird statement, especially to say I've shot 85 chipmunks. Like, good for you, Barry. Great. Good. I don't, whatever. Agent Grusing also mentions that a tranquilizer dart cap was found in the dryer. He asked Barry about what gun he used for that shooting, and he said a 22. Barry's phone was turned onto airplane mode, and his truck didn't move from that 2.44 period when he first got home until 4.44 p.m. That is, so two hours. Now, we're going to get to another piece of the why that dart gun is important in a little bit when we circle back to the movements of those days um, with the truck data, but very, very interesting. His phone is on airplane mode. He doesn't move his truck from 2.44 to 4.45 p.m. At 4.44, his truck door opens and closes. At 9.25 p.m., the gear shift goes from park to reverse and moves backwards in the driveway 95 feet at the Morphew home off Puma Path. At 10.17 on May 9th, his phone is taken off airplane mode, and it was at the house. At 3.25 a.m., several hours later, Barry's truck doors were open and closed again. The phone moved toward where the bike was found, according to the agent. Now, this is really interesting because Barry's phone appears to make a straight line to where the 225 intersects, intersects with 50 close to where Suzanne's bike was recovered. And they can't say that this is where his exact phone was moving, that he was with it, but it does seem very interesting, especially because remember when we first heard about how 
Suzanne had find my iPhone on his phone to track his whereabouts and to see what he was up to, he would often turn airplane mode on to not be tracked. So the fact that he's turning airplane mode on and off the evening in which Suzanne is suspected to have disappeared is very telling in my opinion. It's because he doesn't want his whereabouts tracked. At 4.31 a.m. on May 10th, and this is the day that Suzanne again was reported missing, Barry's phone went into airplane mode again. His phone came back online as he headed towards Broomsville, Colorado. Around 5.37 a.m. is when he started heading towards Buena Vista. It's my belief that within these hours when the airplane mode was going on and off is when he was executing his plot or his plan. And then I think when he gets to the hotel, which we're going to get to in a minute here, as we start seeing what the timestamps were and what his activity was that day, I think that was where the cover-up starts happening. So he starts heading to Broomsfield, Colorado, and at 5.37 a.m., he's heading towards Buena Vista. Then he texts his mother that morning and says, happy Mother's Day before texting Suzanne at 6.10 a.m. with you up. Happy Mother's Day. I love you, which we have heard in previous um, testimony in the past. At 8.10 a.m., he stopped at a bus stop in Broomsfield off Highway 36. Now, what's interesting about this little detour stop at the bus stop is it was a trash run. And this is, if you, I don't know if any of you have followed the Jennifer Dulos case out of Connecticut, but this very much aligns with what her estranged husband, Fotis, had done at the time, making all of these different pit stops along the way to throw away garbage and dispose things in different locations, in my opinion, to destroy evidence. So this is the first one. He stops at that bus stop and he disposes of trash. So he opens the truck passenger and driver's door. And according to dad, it took him only two minutes to throw something away that there was, and there was a, it was just a few feet away from his truck. They, the state had pulled up a Google image of the bus stop in Broomsfield to show that location. Then when Barry first arrives at the hotel, he goes on another trash run. So he's now, which if you're just trying to throw away trash, regardless what it is, whether it's food, whatever is in your car, you're not making stops along the way. If you're going to a hotel for a job site or for whatever it is, you're going to get there and you're going to take all the trash out and you're going to throw it away. There's no need to stop along the way, in my opinion, at least. So he gets to the hotel and he does his second trash run. And he says that he doesn't remember what he threw away. And there's unfortunately no video to be collected for that particular trash run on the south side of the hotel. So at 8.25 a.m., he walks into the hotel and went to his room and checked in at 8.38 a.m., it looks as though through video that Barry had something in his hand, something small, and Agent Grusing said he couldn't tell what it exactly was. However, Barry's next move was carrying multiple items to his room, including hiking boots, a teal-covered piece of clothing, a darker black piece of clothing, and a light blue bag. At 8.41, Barry texts Suzanne that he made it to Broomsfield, but he didn't call her. He just sent her the text. At that point now, it's 8.41 a.m. He stays in his room for an hour. He's not wearing a long sleeve shirt. He's wearing a black V-neck t-shirt. He has a trash bag and those hiking boots that he brought in. Now, Barry said that there were holes in the boots, but that the laces were good. So his plan was he wanted to take them to the room, remove the laces, and then trash the boots. Photos of this from the hotel surveillance are shown during the hearing. But again, why are you throwing away boots? Like your laces are good, so you're gonna keep your laces, but you're gonna throw away the boots. 
not unless there's evidence on them, in my opinion. A few minutes later at 9.12 a.m., he checked in, remember, at 8.38. So at 9.12, just what is that, 20, 40 minutes later, he goes on a third trash run. He leaves the hotel and goes up and around the work site. He never parks, but he goes to the McDonald's in Broomsfield. He throws items away here at this McDonald's. He is seen pushing trash down into the trash can with both hands, according to surveillance videos. Going back to the Jennifer Dulos case, you are scattering evidence. You've got the bus stop. You've got the hotel. Now you've got this McDonald's. Why are you throwing trash away at all of these different locations? And something that wasn't mentioned in the hearing, but I would be really curious to know, did he go inside the McDonald's? Did he buy anything to eat? Is there a receipt for that or anything on his credit card statement? Or did he truly just go to this McDonald's because it was another location in which he could dispose of potential evidence? As though that's not enough, we have two more trash runs coming up, guys. So Agent Grusing had asked Barry what he threw away at the McDonald's. He again says that he can't remember. But then his tracking, he went to a car wash and to a men's warehouse parking lot. Now, why are you going to a McDonald's, to a car wash, to a men's warehouse parking lot if you're there to visit a job site and to work? Which remember, before this, that was the story all along, that he went to prepare this job site. He got the call. He was caught off guard. He left. He had his two workers come, finish the job site. Why are you doing everything but going to the job site? Which he does go to the job site, and we're going to get to that in just a second, for 11 minutes only. So hang on because we're about there. So he spent most of his time at the men's warehouse parking lot. It was about 40 minutes. And this is trash run number four. His truck opens and closes. And this is again in Broomsfield. But one more location to add to the list for disposing of trash. Then FBI has video of Barry um, that he had thrown away that tranquilizer material. Now, remember, they found that cap for the tranquilizer in the dryer. So the only thing that he would tell investigators is that he threw it away. There isn't a lot of detail around this, but if it wasn't a key piece of evidence directly tied back to Suzanne, why would he need to go to such lengths to discard it, to discard of it where the dark cap was already at home? Why wouldn't everything just be together? It's still shady in the fact that you're going to these lengths to dispose of it, which makes me believe that it is absolutely evidence that is tied to her disappearance. So Barry returns back to the hotel and he has his large notebook with papers that are super messy, like the insurance paperwork and all that stuff. And then he left the hotel again 20 minutes later with the notebook in hand and the papers were nice and neat. He also had changed clothes and changed shirts and put on a gray t-shirt. At this point, Gary goes to the Broomsfield wall and he did 11 to 15 minutes of work. He removed blocks from the retaining wall and this job was for Garrett Construction. The company told Agent Grusing that the job would need a bobcat, but he wasn't there to work. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, I don't think he was there to work. He was there to destroy evidence because he only went to this job site for 11 to 15 minutes. You're doing everything else around town except doing what you went there to do. Because even though this is early on in the day, after that, he returns back to his hotel and he sits in his room and doesn't leave for five hours from 12 to five. He doesn't leave his hotel room. So I think it's, again, and it's just my opinion, I believe that he wasn't there to work. He was there to destroy evidence and potentially create his own alibi. At 12.06 p.m., Barry calls his daughter Mallory, and at 3.30, he texts Suzanne to call him. And at 5.15, he gets that call from Mr. Ritter. So really quickly, though, to circle back to the afternoon, at 12.27 p.m., Barry was seen on hotel surveillance moving two bags to a dumpster. Two bags. 
throwing away a bag that you can see, a camo coat, and a tree container. Why are you throwing away so much trash when you're going to a job? When you're going to a job site and you haven't even done any work on that job site to where you could possibly even have trash to throw away, why are you throwing away so much trash? And why are you throwing it away in so many different locations? And how do you not remember what you threw away? If it was so important to stop and throw things away, how do you not remember when investigators ask you what it was that you threw away? How do you not remember the details? He is then seen walking with his hands in his pockets with his heads down, his head down as he walks away from the dumpster. My opinion with that is he probably didn't want to be caught on camera, but that's just me speculating. At 12.42 p.m. until 5.55 p.m., as I mentioned, he does not leave his hotel room in Broomsfield. Now, this doesn't match the statements that he gave investigators early in May. Remember, he said he had been working at that wall at the job site, and he wasn't. He was in his hotel room for five hours doing what he later says, watching the news and a basketball game. And because he didn't leave his room from 12 to almost 6, the story of like, could he have gone to the pool to, and that's what the chlorine was? Could this like, I imagine the cleanup had to have happened earlier on and as he was making all of these little dumpster runs. So at 5.55, Barry had changed his shirts again as he left the hotel room. And Agent Grusing said Barry wouldn't say what he did in that hotel room. He mentioned again, watching Fox News and a basketball game, but his story had changed according to the agent. Because remember, early in May, he had said that he worked at that job site all day. And then later he had amended his story to say he was watching TV in the hotel room. So after 6 p.m., Barry takes multiple trips in and out of the hotel entrance, bringing in the tools, which we know he was bringing everything in to set up for his two workers that were supposed to come and complete the work at the job site. He also asked the front desk receptionist if it would be okay to leave them for his workers who were coming in later. And these were hand tools. Okay, guys. So after all of this evidence came out, it wasn't looking very good for Barry, yet he was still proclaiming his innocence and his daughters were still standing behind him. Then in April of 2022, a judge agreed to dismiss all of the charges against Barry Morphew without prejudice. And this was done just nine days before he was scheduled to stand trial for first-degree murder of his wife and the mother of their two daughters, Suzanne Morphew. It was mentioned that prosecutors who can refile charges in the future filed this motion to dismiss the indictment minutes before a pretrial conference that was scheduled on April 19, 2022, with DA Linda Stanley writing that they needed to investigate further and believe that they are close to discovering the victim's body. She also included that several key expert witnesses initially endorsed, without this crucial evidence and without the victim's body, the people cannot move forward at this time in good faith. So a lot of people when this happened were kind of torn because they were questioning, do they really not have enough evidence against Barry? Is it that they really do need the body in order to make this a slam dunk because they don't want to take any risks of him possibly getting a mistrial or having a hung jury, having a jury that finds him not guilty? So they wanted to play their cards right, and they were waiting for the body to be found, which we now know it has been found. So about a year after the case was dismissed, Barry Morphew filed a civil rights lawsuit in May of 2023. The lawsuit was against Chafee County prosecutors, Colorado Bureau of Investigation employees, and FBI employees. This coming literally about a year after the charges against him were dropped. The lawsuit claims that the defendants engaged in actions including malicious prosecution and unlawful detention, fabrication of evidence, conspiracy, unlawful retention of property, reckless investigation, and failure to supervise and train. In this lawsuit, it reads in part, As a result of the defendant's conduct, Barry was charged, arrested, and prosecuted, and his property seized for a crime that he did not commit. 
As a result of the defendant's conduct, Barry spent five months in jail, approximately six more months wearing a GPS ankle monitor with severe restrictions on his movement, and almost a year defending against the criminal charges. It also read, to this date, Barry's property remains in the CCSD's possession. Barry's name and reputation has been tarnished in Colorado and all around the country. The lawsuit also says that Barry suffered loss of familial association with his two daughters and great economic losses, including the loss of his home, business, savings, and much more. So that lawsuit was filed several months ago in the spring, and things have been relatively quiet up until now. Because as we just heard this week, authorities recovered Suzanne's remains on September 22nd during a search in the area of Moffitt, Colorado, which is about 45 miles from her home west of Salida in Chafee County, where she was initially reported as missing. The El Paso County coroner identified the remains as Suzanne Morphew. Newsweek is also reporting that her remains were found in a shallow grave. In a statement made by Barry's lawyer, he says that Barry is currently with his two daughters and that they had faith that their wife and mom would walk back into their lives again and that this news is absolutely heartbreaking. He goes on to say that Barry is just an absolute shock. And if you remember, early on, one of the things Barry was trying to say in regards to his innocent is that he thinks that Suzanne just up and left, left the kids, had a new lover, left him, and everybody's kind of saying, uh, no, her priority was the children. She would never just leave and abandon them. He was almost kind of trying to position it as a gone girl situation, like she plotted this whole thing. So now it doesn't surprise me that he's doubling down on that, saying how shocked he is. He thought that she was going to walk back into their lives. And, you know, I get it. I get why he's saying that. Do I believe it? Eh, that's a different story. And I'm curious to know if you guys believe Barry is innocent of all of these charges now that you've heard everything start to finish, or if you think that he had something to do with it. Those charges have not been refiled as of yet, so it is going to be very interesting to see what comes in the next few days, weeks, and I will definitely be keeping you updated. But until then, let me know in the comment section what do you believe and who do you believe is responsible. I am just so happy that Suzanne's remains have been found and that they are one step closer to answers and to accountability and to justice. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Serialistly. Please don't forget to take five seconds out of your day if you would be so kind to leave a rating and review of this podcast in the review if you would just let me know what content you want to hear more about if you want me to do more deep dives on cults on family vlogging on anything let me know in that review section because I really do want to cater the content to what you guys want to hear about so please that is a perfect place to let me know and I really appreciate you guys tuning in to today's episode thank you so much I will be seeing you back bright and early on Thursday for headline highlights and then of course every Monday morning with a deep dive on a brand new case all right guys thank you so much for tuning in and I will talk with you very soon. Signing off. Bye.